Well, thank you all for coming. This is a very significant event, very significant book by three significant people, and I'm glad to be introducing two of them here very much so. But the book is The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. And Phil Graham to my right and John Early to my far right are the two authors who will be here and will speak about it. So both are good friends. Phil, of course, used to be an economics professor. I kind of like those kinds of people. <laughs> he was also a senator. And I kind of like those kind of people too. He was an investor, UBS, for one thing, and private equity for another. I've learned about that uh, so much. So thank you so much for being here, Phil, and we're anxious to hear what you and John have to say. John is former assistant commissioner to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and has been so much engaged in these facts and these issues, which we're anxious to hear about. So uh, welcome to, to thank you. Hoover and Stanford. It's great to have you both here, and uh, however you want to proceed is fine with us. Well, why don't I just do it sitting here? Will that work for you, John? Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming. Um, we want to talk about a book we've written, uh, and let me tell you immediately that the biggest problem that I have in talking about it is that while we document every word we're going to say here, it's still hard to believe. So let me just start. My objective is try to give you a short summary of what the book covers. John's going to show you some of the charts and numbers. Um, and then we're going to throw it open for questions, which is what we really look forward to. Our uh, reading of history and our perception of the present has a profound effect on the future. And in the last hundred years, especially since the dawning of the information age, government statistics have become an important part of how we read our well-being. Now, we can sense how we feel. We can sense um, how happy we are. But in gauging our well-being relative to other people in looking at the general well-being of the country, we use economic statistics. Probably the most important economic statistic we use is a census measure of income. It's important because it's the basis of our calculation as to what is happening to income. It's important because we calculate the poverty rate from it. It is important because we use it as the foundation of gauging income inequality in America. In the last quarter century, private studies by economists and studies within the government have found that the census measure of income is very hard to reconcile with what people are actually consuming and the assets they actually own. It also has become clear in the last decade or so that there is a huge gap between the findings of the Census Department in the measure of income and other findings by other government agencies. So let me just give you two glaring examples. 
The Census Bureau puts out a annual number on household income. The Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out an annual number on household consumption. And for the last decade, the bottom 20% of income earners in America have consumed twice as much as their income. The second quintile of income earners have consumed 11% more than their income on average. And the top quintile, the highest 20% of earners, have consumed only roughly 50% of their income, even though there is no evidence that they've accumulated assets at anything like that rate. How is that possible? Now, let me give you another one. The poverty rate fell dramatically from 1947 to 1965. And then for 50 years, it has oscillated between 11% and 15%, depending on how the economy was going. But yet during that period, the level of average transfer payments per household in the bottom 20% of the income distribution of the country has grown from $9,800 to $45,400. Now, how can you be providing $45,400 for the average household in the bottom 20% of the income distribution and the poverty rate has not changed in 50 years? Well, the answer is when you go back and look at the assumptions that the census made in 1947, and the assumptions that it has made since its new benefits have been provided. The Census Bureau today counts only 0.9 trillion of the 2.8 trillion of transfer payments. The Census Bureau does not count tax credits where the beneficiary gets a check from the Treasury. In fact, it doesn't count taxes at all. It doesn't count taxes you pay, which you never see because they're deducted from your wages. It doesn't count them as income you've lost. It doesn't count food stamps that people get in the form of a debit card. It doesn't count Medicare, Medicaid, and over a hundred other federal and state benefits that where government pays for the benefit that people who get the means-tested benefit get. Overall, the Census Bureau today is counting only about one-third of all transfer payments as income to the recipients, and it's not counting any income taxes, any taxes paid at federal, state, or local level as income lost to the recipients. As a result, the Census Bureau says that the top 20% of earners get 16.7 times as much income as the bottom 20%. We show that if you count all transfer payments as income to the recipients, and you count all tax payments as income lost to the people who paid the taxes, 
that the ratio is not 16.7 to 1, but 4 to 1. Now look, you can debate how much income should be redistributed in a free society. It's a legitimate debating point. But there's a big difference between debating it when the facts show that the ratio is 4 to 1 rather than 16.7 to 1. We also find, amazingly, that transfer payments have grown so rapidly since 1965 relative to the after-tax income of middle-income workers that the bottom 60% of earners in America, when you adjust for household size, roughly make the same income. And how does this manifest itself? Well, one of the ways it manifests itself is that because the value of transfer payments has elevated uh, the bottom 20% of income earners into the American middle income group, the, labor, the number of prime work age persons in the bottom 20 percentile that actually work has declined from 68% to 36%. The percentage of people in the second quintile that work has fallen, and the new transfer payments that were created during the pandemic started to erode the work effort among middle-income Americans. We find that when you count all transfer payments as income, that the poverty rate in America is not 12%, but roughly 2 to 3%. We have gotten ourselves onto this treadmill where we provide more benefits, the census doesn't count them as income, Congress provides more benefits, census doesn't count them as income, and yet, while we are providing benefits to people who've long ago stopped being poor by the way we define poverty, we've still got a hardcore group of people of about 2% that because of mental illness and because of drug addiction and because of the inability of people often to take care of themselves, they're totally unreached by these programs. Um, you have all heard some variant of what the Economist magazine says when it says it is universally acknowledged that inequality is high in the West and growing. Bernie Sanders says income inequality uh, is obscene and unsustainable. We show that if you count all transfer payments as income and you reduce income by the amount of taxes that people pay, that rather than the distribution of income, rather than income inequality growing by 22%, which the census shows, we show it has actually declined by 3%. Um, we talk about um, the consumer price index. There are five price indices that are used to index everything from taxes to spending. We show that there's a great variability among them and which one we choose has a profound effect. Um, we also look at causes of 
earned income inequality. Why do some people make more money than others? Interestingly enough, and hardly surprising, people who work make more income. Uh, secondly, people that have a larger quantity and quality of education make more income. Um, we look at the super rich. Who are these people? Where did they come from? What is the economic effect of their fortunes? Who benefited? Do they pay their fair share of taxes? We show with hard evidence from the Internal Revenue Service that up to 1% of 1% of the top earners in America face an increasing marginal tax rate. There are roughly 400 households that because of how much money they earn, the way they earn it, the amount they give to charity, uh, have a dip in their rate. Not a huge dip, but a dip. Uh, we show, I think convincingly, that America has the most progressive income tax system in the world by a big margin. The top 10% of earners in America pay a larger share of income taxes than the top 10% of earners in any other country on the face of the earth. And the bottom 90% pay less than earners in any other place on the face of the earth. We show that when tax rates were 91% under President Kennedy, that virtually nobody paid the tax rate. In fact, President Kennedy cut the rate to 70, arguing nobody's paying it, but it's discouraging economic growth. We show that tax rates today, effective rates paid by the top one and top 10% at 37% marginal rate, that the average rate collected is higher today than it was when the rate was 91%. Uh, we look at Piketty and his study and basically show that they, he gets the result he gets because he doesn't count any government transfers in the income of low-income people and because he changes the definition of income to count as income any appreciation in assets like the value of your home, the value of your retirement system, the value of your investment, uh, nobody anywhere in the world pays taxes based on the non-realized appreciation of their assets. We look at this ProPublica where they were using stolen tax data from very rich people like Warren Buffett. And the amazing thing is they can't make their case with the tax return. So what they do is they take Warren Buffett's income but they don't take his income that was reported on the tax return. They make up an income figure by estimating his level of wealth and what his earnings would have been if he had sold all his assets every year. Um, we then look at mobility in America. You know, collectivists want to tell us that America's unfair because of income inequality. But equality of outcome in the competition of life is alien to the American ethos. What America promises, not equality of outcome, 
America promises, in the words of Abraham Lincoln, a fair chance in an open way to use your industry and intellect to advance yourself. We look at mobility numbers, both absolute and relative mobility, and I think convincingly show that mobility is alive and well in America, and so is the American dream. Uh, 93% of all Americans that grow up in the bottom quintile of income earners as adults have a higher standard of living than their parents did. That number falls slightly for the middle three quintiles, but at the top quintile, 70% have uh, income levels greater than their parents. Now remember, we're talking about the elapse of some 30 to 50 years when we're comparing families to children. And during that period, we have had amazing prosperity in America. To just stay in the same quintile of income earners, uh, other than the bottom quintile, you've got to make 119% more in real income than your parents to stay in the same quintile they were in. We find that among the three quintiles in the middle, there is great mobility. People go up, people go down. We find that in the bottom quintile, where people are often forced to attend failing schools, where their parents uh, may not have the knowledge or resources to deal with many of their problems, that still not only do 93% live in families as adults that have more income than their parents, but 62% have their income rise enough to move into a higher quintile, including 6.1%, that in one generation go from the poorest families in America to the richest families in America. We find among high-income Americans that 62% end up as adults living in households that have a lower quintile income than their parents. And, And you need to remember that if you're in the bottom quintile, there's no basement quintile, so if your income falls, you're still in the bottom quintile. And in the top quintile, uh, uh, you're in a situation where if your income rises, no matter how much it rises, you're still in the top quintile. Uh, Elon Musk was clearly raised in the top quintile. Uh, but he and became the richest man in the world, but he still did not rise in the quintile because you can only rise to the top quintile. Now, if you were in deciles or whatever terms John would tell you, uh, you would he would have gone the distance. So anyway, as brief as an old college professor can be, <laughs> that is a summary of the book. Remarkably. Final point, we're having a debate 
about changing the fundamental nature of the American economy based on the assumption of growing inequality when the hard evidence shows that inequality is actually lower today than it was at the end of World War II. John? Okay, thank you, Phil. That was a good introduction to the general picture of what we learned in all this research, and I'm gonna fill in a few points here and there with a little more of the statistics. This chart is a graph of the income distribution of uh, United States households as measured and released by the Census Bureau for the year 2017. It's broken down into quintiles or fifths of the households, ranging from about 13,000 in the uh, bottom quintile to 220,000 in the top. So I'm going to disassemble this, look at the pieces, and tell you what we did to make this a much better estimate. And in doing that, 99.99% of the data we used was other published government data. Uh, there was one little place where we got some private data. But we didn't make this data up. It's actual published data. So the census data, as Phil said, tells us that that range of income is a factor of 16.7 greater at the top than at the bottom. And we'll keep coming back to, well, when the ch we made these changes, what happened? The census data consists of two big buckets where all the various details are put. One is earned income, the money you get from working and the money you get from saving. The other is transfer payments, the mother money that government gives you. And uh, we're going to look at each of those pieces and see what improvements we made in the, in the measurement thereof. First, earned income, the blue distribution there is what census publishes. But we looked at everything, not just everything that would reduce uh, inequality, but think some things that added inequality as uh, missing earned income did. The census, for example, does not count realized capital gains. Now, I'm not talking about those fictitious capital gains that the senator was laying out there. These are the real ones that you pay taxes on. Uh, they just don't count them for some reason. They also don't count income as income the benefits you get paid by your employer. Of course, the most famous one being health insurance benefits, but there, there are many others. When we put those in, we get a distribution that looks like this that is 60 times from top to bottom. And I'll return to this in a little while to talk about the reasons for that. Now we're going to turn to, now that we know what the distribution of earned income looks like and what changes we made to improve that, we're going to turn to the uh, transfer payments. This is the census transfer payments. Um, Social Security is a big piece of this. Other things that are included here are unemployment insurance, uh, workers' compensation, and so on. So those transfer payments are captured by census, but they're only about a third of the total. And these are the missing transfer payments. These include such things as refundable uh, tax credits where you get a check from the treasury uh, from, based on your income level that's free money. This is not returning of, of, uh, of taxes that have been withheld. This is just a new grant of money to you. It doesn't include uh, the charges made to the debit cards you get for your food stamps. It doesn't include Medicaid. 
and over 100 other uh, federal programs plus state and local programs. So that, that missing piece there is about 1.9 trillion with a T. We add that together and we get a distribution that's now a whole lot less steep. In fact, top to bottom, it's 5.7 times as large, uh, about cut in half what census told us it was by getting all the pieces put together. Uh, now we're going to take a look at something else that happens to us. You know, the government giveth, the government taketh away. And we all lose to taxes. The red and orange shading here shows how much we lose to taxes. About 35% of income for, on average to those in the top quintile. Uh, about 7% in the bottom quintile. Within the top quintile, that percentage rises up over 40%. Uh, for, at, the, at the highest levels. And that leaves us with that dashed line there, which is income after transfers and taxes. And that tells us that the transfers and taxes are, when we take account of them, the difference is only 4.0. So we've cut the perception of inequality by, a, you know, by three quarters here. Uh, so uh, as was mentioned earlier, you can debate whether what government ought to do about it, but this is a question of what do they do, did they do about it? Is reducing the inequality down to only four to one, is that far enough? Uh, or is 16.7 uh, far enough? We can debate that, but we need to know that right now we're sitting at four to one. And the other important point, it's not only does the compression between top and bottom change, but the very important compression between middle and bottom, uh, shown here by our little uh, uh, purple rectangle. And I want to take and dissect that range in the income distribution just a little bit. Here the same data are shown in a slightly different format. Again, same four to one ratio top to bottom. But look how close the income levels are there for the first, second, and middle quintiles. Uh, and just to give a little more color to that, the difference between the bottom and second quintile is only 8% of income. Yet, uh, the people, the adults, the prime age adults between 18 and 65, 2.8 times more of those in the second quintile work than in the middle quintile. When you go to the, I mean, then in the bottom quintiles, okay. 2.8 times more in the second than in the bottom. Then when you go to the middle, uh, which makes about 32% more income, but they're more than three times as likely to work. So there are a lot more people are working, three times as many, and yet the incomes are hardly different. And of those that work, tw they work twice as many hours in the middle as they do in the bottom. So there's a good deal of difference in work effort. There's disincentive to work because the income differences aren't all that big. Okay, that's from the perspective of the earning side, if you would, and the income side of it. But how about in terms of the well-being of the people in the household? Well, that varies by household size. Uh, smaller households tend to have lower incomes, bigger households tend to have larger incomes. And there are a number of ways to adjust for that. We'll show here at the average of three of those. The book goes into a little more detail. But if we adjust for household size, the difference between top and bottom drops to 2.7 to 1. Uh, so the, 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 the divergence 
shrinks on us again. And what is interesting here is that the bottom quintile actually, on a size-adjusted basis, has 5% more income than the second quintile, based on uh, the, their earnings power. And although the middle income gets a little bit more, it's only 7% more for, work, for three times as many of the people working and for them working twice as long. So again, disincentive to work. And that's, that led to this decline from 68% of the folks, of the adults in the bottom quintile 50 years ago working to only 37% working today. Let's return for a minute now then back to that earned income to see why there's the difference. And the Senator outlined what some of those differences were and we're gonna quantify them a bit. And you want to emphasize this is earned income. This is what people actually earn, no transfer payments. Yeah, right. This is before the transfer payments and before the taxes as well. Um, and the largest reason for this difference is this difference in work effort that I was just, uh, just hi highlighting here. Um, and so that is, accounts for almost a third of the difference because the people in the bottom quintile uh, only about 30% uh, of them work, of the adults work, whereas it's over 100% in the top quintile because of the way we did it. We count all, anybody who works and divided by the number of prime age adults. There are, not only do almost all the prime age adults work, but so do a lot of people that aren't prime age, both older and younger. And so that difference accounts for about a third of the, of the total difference in income. The more you work, the more you make. Another 25% comes from the quant quantity of the education. Now, Phil mentioned both quantity and quality. Uh, the quality uh, we haven't teased out here, but this is the quantity. Just so if you have a college degree in a quantitative discipline and you become a surveyor, uh, very important discipline, uh, you only make half as much as someone who also got a bachelor's degree and became a uh, computer programmer. So there's difference in terms of occupational choice. And so that choice is, some, is preferential. You know, people like one job or the other, uh, as well as their, their other skills that they may have. A, another 6% comes from the difference in occupate of, of occupation uh, within the education, which I, I guess I hit the button. It didn't move before. Sorry about that. Um, and then we have about 2% uh, coming from experience. As people get more experience in their work, their income doubles over their work life uh, on average. And that, of course, adds some to the uh, inequality. There's another 18% uh, here that comes from other employment-related inequalities that we won't uh, go into right now. And 17% comes from uh, differences in savings. So those are the reasons why there's difference in earned income. Then all that difference in earned income, of course, immediately gets compressed considerably by adding lots of, of uh, transfer payments to the lower end and taking lots of taxes from the higher end. Now we're going to look at another measure here. We've been measuring the top to the bottom. Well, this is called a Gini index. Um, it's not some critter in a bottle. but uh, that's going to give you your wishes, but it runs from zero, which says that there is no inequality and therefore complete equality. Every household gets exactly the same income, all the way up to one, where one household would get it all. And the census data for that measure 
runs at about 23% increase over the last 70 years, just sort of systematically working its way up. But we know part of the reason why that is so. They weren't counting a lot of the transfer payments that were going into effect, and they weren't counting the taxes. When we count those, it doesn't go up. In fact, it goes down 3%. Okay, now let's take a look at the poverty rate. Before the war on poverty, poverty had dropped in the last 20 years by half. Johnson wanted to make it fall faster and also replace the handout with the getting people jobs. And so what happened? We had some big appropriations and it went down a little bit, but it was all within a range. And it stayed within that range for, for 50 years. It oscillated with the business cycle, but there was no trend up. Again, we know the answer why. They weren't counting all those transfer payments that the war on poverty was, uh, was uh, passing and distributing to people. If we counted those, the, I mean, the poverty rate would have dropped to about 2.5%. And then Phil was talking about this, uh, this, the various CPIs that are used. Well, census doesn't use the best one for this purpose. And if they did, we would find it dropped down to just a shade over 1%. So we have a measurement problem here, uh, and we need to get that straight before we have debates about what we do about income distribution. And finally, looking at this long-term effect of, of upward mobility in the population. This chart here is the income for the year 1967, and each of the pieces of the, of the stacked bars there is one of the income quintiles, showing the income range. So, for example, the bottom quintile runs up to about $15,000, and the top quintile begins at about $55,000. Uh, and each of the others there are, are, are labeled appropriately. And the, the top uh, kind of phases out as you go to the top, just to remind, remind you that that's 150,000 at the top is not the limit. That's just as far as we took the chart because it could go on indefinitely. Now put the data for 2017 there, and you, you see that 77% of the households are making incomes that in the year 1967 would have been in the top quintile. That's real adjusted for inflation. Okay. And so everybody that's in the uh, top quintile today would have been then, all those in the fourth quintile, all those in the middle, and the majority, vast majority of those in the second quintile even would have been in the top quintile. And only about 2% of those in the bottom quintile today would have been in the bottom quintile back then. So that is the massive improvement in the prosperity of the American household over the last 50 years. And hopefully that will give you enough grist for the mill for some interesting questions. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Phil, very much. Oh, there's, there are mics if people have a question uh, to ask. Or, I have one, just one to get started. And please line up, that's fine. Um, you mentioned uh, there's possibilities of legislation in the book, and you gave examples. Is that a possible solution? Is that just impossible? Because, no, I mean, well, these things can be corrected, right? So, in the conclusion, we really focus on three policy changes. One, Congress needs to legislate to require the Census Bureau 
to count all income and all taxes. Now, we're trying to start a debate. We're not trying to end a debate. We're not claiming that food stamps are worth the value that is transferred to people. It may be more, may be less. Medicaid uh, pays only 70% what you pay in private health insurance if you pay it through private health insurance. But we simply count the average transfer in the income. All of that is debatable, but what is not debatable is that these things have value. That when you get a check from the treasury, it's money. When you get a credit card uh, from, the, uh, uh, from the treasury and they pay the debit card and they charge it every month, that is certainly not of zero value. So please talk right in the mic. People have yelled at me all these years, so I don't hear too good. Okay. Uh, thanks a lot, Senator. I'm really glad you're here today. I noticed when I started going to college and graduate school in the mid-90s that there were a lot of misconceptions. I could give you a big one as an example, and that simply was, they talked about how it was a new economy in 1995. It was a new economy that the old measures didn't mean a thing because of this new economy with the internet and what have you. Now, that was a lot of bilge because at the time, what you had were people chasing stocks so they would be part of the new economy being sold on the internet, okay? So you wanna be the Amazon rather than just a corner market. Of course, everybody wants to grow. So there was this chasing of tech stocks. That's why you had stocks going up without the income to justify it. And people talked of that as a new economy. It was just a temporary condition because it was at the beginning. I ask, why have a misconception? Somebody has a motive to institute it. And that's the question I want to get at. We have a lot of people today who benefit from misconceptions, like the misconceptions that you're mentioning here, who do they benefit? Well, let, me, let me respond by saying that I, I mentioned the first thing we want to do. We want to require that we get our facts straight. Second, if we're going to continue to provide the level of assistance we're providing, we're going to have to have a mandatory work requirement for work age, healthy people who are capable of working. Uh, and uh, finally, we've got to do something about improving the quality of primary and secondary education. Uh, I failed the third, seventh, and ninth grades. I didn't learn to read until I was in the 10th grade. My father died when I was uh, in the ninth grade and he had served in the army during the war. My mama got the $8,000 of GI insurance, which was a fortune. And she was gonna send me to college, but she decided, well, I wasn't ever going to college. So she took the money and sent me to private school. 
Within a week, they figured out I couldn't read. I was reading at the third grade, ninth month level. Changed my life. Now, how many people in inner city schools are like me? How much talent is it that is there that's never, ever discovered? Uh, and uh, if we're going to create more opportunity, we've got to deal with it at that point. Even when they go on to college, people that don't get a good education, primary and secondary level, don't end up majoring the things that pay. Um, so anyway. Um, Thank you so much for that uh, lucid presentation. Um, I'm a senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution, an economist. The facts you laid out are reasonably well known in the economics profession, but sadly, often ignored or obfuscated. Um, so it's really a pleasure to see you lay them out so clearly. And I largely agree with the uh, critique that you've made. I have one comment and, and one question. The comment involves something that the senator referred to briefly at the end, which is a big chunk of the transfer payments, Medicare and Medicaid in particular, take a form where the outlays uh, may, may exceed greatly in value the benefits as perceived by the recipient. So I'm not quite sure how you handled that. There are studies that I recall that say the average Medicare dollar or Medicaid dollar is worth only 25 cents to the recipient. So that makes a big difference in your adjustment and I was wondering uh, how you handled that. The second thing relates to your comments about education and also crime comes to mind. So this is just a genuine question. Do people in the lower rungs of the earnings distribution today, do they face worse prospects than their counterparts a generation ago with respect to vulnerability to, to crime, violence, and so on? And do they have less or more access to public schooling of reasonable quality? Thank you. Well, uh, let me let me say I didn't answer the first question. I realized I had not made the two points. We don't get into why this has happened. Uh, we don't try to look and see uh, why the census made the decisions it made, uh, why data is calculated the way it is. We just simply want to fix it. We want to get our facts straight. Um, in terms of are people better off today than they were a generation ago, clearly in terms of what people are capable of producing? The answer is they're better off. Uh, are the schools better than they were 20 years ago? I, I guess it depends on which schools you go to, and we're, we're not expert enough to deal with that, but I want John to, to uh, answer the question about the Medicare and the valuing of, of, of the asset, of the transfer. Okay, um, and we might say a little bit more about the education in that what is clear that for most of the last 50 years, education on average has not improved. And especially for the, those from disadvantaged backgrounds, it has not improved. The data on, on that are, are quite clear. Uh, the exceptions are those who get the advantage of such things as charter schools and so on, but they are the, the, the minority exception. Now to the matter of valuing transfer payments. The one thing we know for sure 
is that they're not worth zero. And that's the way census uh, treats it. Some of them, it's absolutely clear that they're worth the, the money that's sent along. You know, you, you can go buy $1,000 worth of food. Uh, and you, that frees up $1,000 elsewhere for you to spend. The same with the treasury checks to the refundable tax credits. No doubt that that's what it's worth, is cash. Uh, Medicaid and Medicare are a little bit different in the sense that you say, well, they're not that valuable to the, to the recipient. Well, that is perhaps a problem of the design of the program, but it is the amount of money that is put into it. Uh, so if, if you're looking at it in terms of income transfer, that's how much money was transferred. Now, if it's worth only 25 cents, well, there's a solution to that, which is you put some skin in the game. You, Medicaid has absolutely no cost share at all. And, uh, the met, and the cost share in Medicare is very minor. So you, know, you could redesign those in a different way. It's not a question of how much is transferred. It's the question is, was it transferred as efficiently as it could be? And the, the question about Medicaid and Medicare value to the recipients, the, at least not the studies I've seen, it's, 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 it's provocative in terms of looking at it, but it, it doesn't demonstrate it convincingly for a number of reasons. One is that already the amount is only 70-some percent. Uh, well, it's, it's, well, let me turn it around the other way. It's 44% it's as much as what they, you pay, or 44% less than what you would pay in the market. Okay, so that suggests that other people are consuming the same stuff at a much higher price. So already it's discounted substantially. Now whether it should be discounted further, you know, you could, we could do some research on that, but so far the choices of how to adjust for it seem to be relatively arbitrary. Uh, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a valid point, but we just gotta figure it out. We know it's not zero, and I'm pretty comfortable with the 44% discount is about right. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you both for coming. I appreciate your time. My name is Kevin Kadavi. I'm a freshman here at Stanford. And I was wondering if the inclusion of transfer payments decreases the percentage of people in poverty, and poverty is defined by um, income earned. Were the lives of those people examined after the transfer payments? Because if they're still struggling with, in a uh, conventional or practical sense of poverty, and we redefine what income means, do we have to redefine then what poverty means? Um, and then what is then to be done with that? Do we have to change? Well, um, let, yeah, let me start by responding by saying that we define poverty as three times the cost of a basic diet. That is a government definition. And so the question is, do they have access to resources that allow them to achieve that level? And uh, what we're saying is, if you count all transfer payments, that the number of people who are actually poor in America by the standard definition is closer to 2% than it is to 12%. Um, uh, so, that's how we're approaching it. Now, uh, are people poor if you're giving them benefits? Um, it's, a, it's a question about uh, is there a difference between earning income and being given income? Obviously, I think there is. 
Uh, but that's a, it's a value judgment on my part. I think happiness comes from achievement. Uh, and one of the reasons I want to get people back to work is, is not just the money it costs to provide the benefits, but if you're not in the economy, you miss the boom that happened in the last 50 years. If you're not on this escalator we call American free enterprise, uh, you don't accumulate skills, you don't get on the job training, and you don't discover ability you have. So I may have gotten way off your question. You yeah. want to add yeah. to it? Let, let me just clarify a bit, and it may just be the way you, you stated it, but the income level has from the beginning included both transfers and earned income. The, big the reason for the divergence over time is that almost all the transfer payments, well, two things. First of all, transfer payments were a lot smaller proportion of the income, uh, some 70% rather than 90% of, of, of the lower income people. But the other was um, that over time, we added more and more transfer payments, raising their total income, but we weren't counting it. That's the, that's the key. So transfers have always been there. Uh, the ones that were there 50 years ago are still in the numbers, but they're the only ones in their numbers. All the new stuff that's been added isn't there, roughly speaking. Interesting, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, and considering that remaining two to three percent of people- Get, get close to the mic. Um, thank you. Considering that remaining two to three percent of people that still fall within poverty, uh, as you suggested, those with mental illness or disability, what is then to be done with those people who, even after receiving these government benefits, are unable to, uh, to survive and live in society with the rest of us? Well, let me take the first crack at it. Um, it's clear that our program of pumping more and more and more money into these programs is not reaching these people. Uh, and there has to be a different approach when someone's got severe mental illness or they're have drug addiction and they can't take care of themselves and, and any children they might have, there's got to be some new way of approaching, approaching it rather than simply increasing the amount of food stamps when they don't even apply for the food stamps. So this is something we don't make a value judgment about, but in my opinion, you've got to, we've got to have something that reaches these people individually. And the point that we've made in the book and elsewhere is the tragedy is we're spending massive amounts of money and we're not reaching the people that are really poor. Thank you. Question? I don't know. Can you, can you hear me? Okay. Um, you said that you haven't, you're, you're trying to be dispassionate about the data, which I, which I agree with. But you must have uh, looked at a little bit of the feedback of whether or not people are listening and, and can... You, what you've done here be um, pulled into law or, or changed people's mind. And I look around here and I'm guessing the average age is, median age is probably about 68. So we don't have a whole lot of young people here. What, what do you think of, what, what, what does your data show on that or what's your feelings on that? Well, I believe ideas are powerful things. And uh, it's, which just simply, we believe that if you get the facts straight, 
that society will make better decisions. They may not be the decisions I agree with. But when we're making decisions, when our statistical measures are as far off as, as they are today, we're making bad decisions. And so we, there is a growing interest in this issue. That's why we wrote the book. And uh, we're willing to go willing to go anywhere and debate anybody about these subjects. Uh, and again, we don't think we got any monopoly on the truth. But <laughs> the point is, we think the case is very strong that we got to change the way that we uh, collect and report statistics so that we can have a debate about what kind of future we want in the country based on what the present is and what the past has been. Good question over here. Thank you very much for your presentation. Actually, my question I think is pretty similar to that. Um, what social changes have you seen that you think is affecting the way that people are perceiving inequality? Um, for example, just walking around Silicon Valley, it's very stark to see people living in camper trailers next to some of the largest tech monopolies in the world uh, having their headquarters. Um, and similarly, in the past, it doesn't seem that like, the richest people in the world were feuding with people on Twitter. Um, so are there any changes you've seen that might make it seem that inequality has increased despite the statistics? Would you, John, would you tell me again what exactly what you think the question was? I'm not sure I got it's, it. It's, not, it's nothing wrong it's with your it's asking. A, it's a visual. It's you, a out, you drive around here, you see people in tents. You see them in San Francisco. And they're next to millions of homes. And what about that? What do you, you, you do, are you doing anything about that? Say, say that one more time. <laughs> you don't have to even look at your statistics. Yeah. Look around. Yeah. Your people in tents, people in streets, living on the street. Yeah. And they're living right next to very fancy homes. Yeah. So what about that? Well, look, the thing that started us thinking about this book was the statistics didn't show the world that our eyes see. Now look, there are poor people on the streets in San Francisco, but they're not there because the government has not provided money to take care of them. They're there in many cases because they've got problems that are not solved by the government program. And simply throwing more money at the program is not going to solve their problem. Now, there are people who live in very nice houses, but you need to realize we don't live in a zero-sum world. When somebody gets a degree from engineering here and goes out and makes a quarter of a million dollars a year starting out, they're not taking that money away from you. They're taking it away from me. They're creating it. Uh, Warren Buffett is a very rich man, but he made every penny of it, and he made us richer in the process. So, uh, you know, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't, I don't resent people being successful if we've all benefited from their success, and whether we have or not, it's their success. They didn't take it away from us. And from the time of Plato, We've debated inequality based on the world he lived in, which was a zero-sum world. Uh, we live in a world where people create their own wealth 
and we'll all benefit from it. So two more questions right here, and that's it. Please. Okay. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your presentation. Um, your data was represented in quintiles, but the uh, discussion on inequality has shifted to the bottom 50 compared to only just the top 1%. So uh, how does your data hold up when and the dramatic decrease of the ratio when the population is divided into, uh, say, smaller groups of 5 to 10%? And how do you respond to critics who may even go as far to compare the top 1% to the bottom 1%? Well, if I, if I may on that one. Well, there actually in the, the, there is a chapter on the super rich where we get down to the 1% of 1% and the one-tenth of 1% of the 1%. So we, we, get, we, we cut it as finely as the data will, will allow us to, and that's, that's easy to do. And the, the point about, well, people take comparisons that just happen to make their case work, but the standard releases are in quintiles, so that's why we did that. But if you took it, if you do it in deciles, if you do it in percentiles, you get essentially the same answer. Uh, it's just it found in a little different in detail. I can't hear you. But so good question. Questions. Yeah. Questions here. Yeah, and, and the sorry. point being that in the broad general statistics of the census department, it's quintiles. That's what they use. That's what we use. But we look at down to the 400 richest households in America. So we look at the micro level at who these people are. And I, the, the question about this massive income inequality. Uh, Warren Buffett uh, has created a tremendous amount of wealth. He has massive income. He doesn't spend much of it. So where does wealth go? He reinvests it back in America. Would we be better off taking his wealth and giving it to the government to spend than we are with him investing that wealth and building a future that you're going to be part of. Um, so two, uh, more, two more questions, Phil. Is it one and then one, two? That's it. Um, thank you very much for your time. My name is Jared Weisberg, and I'm an undergraduate here at Stanford. My question is, if you have a transfer payments disincentivizing the second and middle quintile from working, that would imply that in order to incentivize them to work, you would reduce transfer payments, or one of the other solutions you recommended was a mandatory uh, wage requirement for the bottom quintile, which in a, our current society might be difficult to implement. So if you were to reduce transfer payments, how would you do that without detriment to the bottom quintile? Well, um, we actually have done that back in the 1996 uh, welfare reform. Uh, there was a uh, aid to dependent children, or families with dependent children, uh, that had no work requirement. And there were lots and lots of single mothers with kids on that program. It was replaced with a tempor uh, temporary assistance to needy families, and a work requirement was put on it. And lo and behold, large proportions of those single mothers with children went to work. And their poverty level dropped, and the expenditure on that program uh, dropped. And in fact, if you look at three years' worth of data for total transfer payments, it flattened out. So it, that principle does work. 
you, if you can't work, or if you're trying to find a job and you can't find a job, we will support you in it. But if you're not looking for a job, we're not going to support you in it. And so and that leveled it out. And then it started up again because what happened in other programs administratively, they started easing up on their other requirements so that some people who were on that AFDC started moving to other programs and picking up the spending there. But it, it has worked in, and in one slice, and we just want to make it work across the entire program. The Clinton welfare reform is the most successful reform of my political career. A dr tremendous drop in the number of uh, families on aid to dependent children. Most of them took jobs, benefited, they benefited, their children benefited. Would that happen in every other program? Who knows, but it happened there. No question about that. Last question. Yes, Thank you. Uh, I'm Walt McCullough. Um, I have, we have one big concern right now in the economy, and that's inflation. Yet I've only heard that word one, used once by you people. Um, and I, as far as I'm concerned, inflation is caused by all these transfer payments of phony money. Could you comment on that? Yes, I can. Um, we, all these numbers we're using are adjusted for inflation. But look, I, we increased government spending by 50% in one year. And there is no possibility that you can increase government outlays by 50% in a year and not have prices go up. Uh, so there's no question in my mind that this inflation was created by excess demand. Now, and every other country in the world followed our example and they produced similar results to what we have. Um, and as a result of this inflation, real wages are now falling. And to try, inflation is like war. They're easy to get into, they're hard to get out of. And uh, my guess is before this is over, there's going to be a lot more negative economic impact before we get out of this inflation problem. The last Trump stimulus was ill-advised the Biden stimulus was totally irresponsible. Um, we had to do something to try to cushion the blow of the pandemic, but Washington took it as an opportunity to spend everything that could be spent as quickly as it could be spent. And we filled the gap that the pandemic had created three times over with new spending. Uh, and when that happened, there was no way that there could be anything except the inflation that we've had. So this was made by bad policy. Now, the pandemic contributed, but trying to blame this on supply chains when you increase spending by 50% is preposterous. Well, I don't know whether that's true, but it sure hurts everybody. And if you own your own home, you're paying rent to yourself. If you don't, you're paying rent to somebody else. So you can make a case to some extent. We've looked at that, by the way. Uh, but the point is, 
It is very harmful to working people who are seeing their real wages decline. Uh, it's very harmful to retired people on fixed income. Um, it, it's, and again, it's, we're not through it yet. And my, I'm, I'm afraid, I hope I'm wrong, that it's going to be difficult to bring the inflation rate down. Bill, thank you so much. Uh, John, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.